Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm the Executive Director of BCLT and your host, Wayne Stacy. Today, we have the second part of a discussion with Professor Stuart Broutman. Uh, if you recall, Professor Broutman is a professor of media management and law at the University of Tennessee and is pioneering a new model for addressing privacy issues. Today, we're going to actually focus on something a little different than uh, the model we discussed uh, last time, the, the carrot and the stick, and really start addressing some of the competition between different jurisdictions on how they're trying to regulate privacy and related issues. So, Stuart, let me start with just the, the first question is, why is federal preemption such a contentious issue in the development of a, a federal digital privacy legislation? Thanks, Wayne. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, federal preemption remains a sticking point, I think, particularly because it is a sticking point in the federal discussion, which means on one side of the aisle, you have the Republicans and the other, the Democrats. And to the extent that they do not want to move closer to enacting legislation, preemption gives an obvious point of division between the two parties. Uh, generally, you can characterize the Democrats as being favorable to preemption, and you can characterize the Republicans as not being favorable to preemption based on states' rights and the ability of states to handle things. But we have a really interesting moving mix of uh, players here, particularly because California, in enacting the California Privacy Rights Act, and then of course, before that, the California legislature enacting uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act. So, so there we have essentially, particularly with the CPRA, which was enacted as a ballot proposition, we have the voters who have now essentially said, this is the type of privacy legislation that we want. And it's the only legislation so far that essentially has faced voters at the ballot box. And as you know, California has about 40 million people, not that many voted, but certainly it represents us, uh, the largest state in the union. And of course, two of the critical players are the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, represents the congressional district in the San Francisco area. And of course, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, who of course was the Attorney General when CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act was adopted and obviously was a strong proponent of that. So even though they are Democrats, they also have the interests of California. And those interests obviously are to make the California laws as workable as possible and not have the federal government come in and essentially preempt them prematurely. And of course, then we have other states who have been added to the mix. So we have both Virginia and Colorado, which now have laws which have been enacted by the legislature and signed by the governor. And if you look a little bit at the political makeup of those states, Virginia, as you know, is what's characterized now as a purple state. And in the recent gubernatorial election, we saw it flip pretty dramatically from the Democrats to Republicans. 
And so it's a very interesting state as a bellwether, but clearly in Virginia, there was enough popular support and a democratic legislature which passed this. So there, there are two democratic legislatures, California and Virginia, which have favored preemption. Uh, and then in Colorado, which is primarily a democratic state, we also had uh, a legislature and a democratic governor sign. So we see, even though philosophically in Washington, the Democrats seem to be aligned in preemption at the state level, you see that they may not be as closely aligned in terms of having the federal government involved. And particularly if you go back to the Tip O'Neill axiom of all things being local, there is political support in individual states to have the states handle this. And to the extent that the federal government gets involved, uh, I think you'll have a number of congressional and senatorial representatives, as well as state representatives who essentially go to Washington and say, we do not want you to do this. Uh, the other interesting state to watch here is Texas. So obviously Texas, which is a highly Republican state, Republican legislature and Republican governor uh, has a philosophy which they've now expressed in a pretty extensive white paper, which essentially says, we think this should be a matter of the states. And so what that means, even if you do some rough math, it is with those four states, we have about 80 million people, about a quarter of the country, which are already under the umbrella of individual state laws. And again, that's a pretty big headwind to then have Congress come in and say, we are going to preempt what you've already enacted. Now that raises an interesting issue in terms of what preemption means. So the federal view so far has been talking about field preemption and field preemption basically means that you take an entire area like digital privacy and say that only the federal government can be involved here. And so it would take away the power of the states. That's not the only type of preemption that's possible. There's something called floor preemption. And that really hasn't been discussed as much. Some people may not consider that preemption, but we have a number of different examples of floor preemption. Probably one that everyone knows is minimum wage. So we have a federal minimum wage, but that means that once that standard is set, states can essentially come in and exceed that standard. So that's what floor preemption is about. And interestingly enough, particularly in the privacy area, we've seen this applied in Canada. So a Canadian law, which is a federal law, has a specific provision that says that individual provinces can opt out if they are substantially meeting the uh, requirements, meaning that essentially they can raise the floor. And seven provinces in Canada have done so. Again, that's not on the table now. I think we're too much in a binary world of preempt or not, but I think there's some ability to widen that discussion in terms of possibly making preemption more of a floor concept as opposed to a field concept. Well, it seems that one of the, the fears is that individual states or 
or localities, individual cities get out in front of the federal government or really out in front of commerce in terms of measuring or regulating certain areas of privacy, uh, such as you know biometric and facial recognition. And I, I think you had some examples of where states and localities are kind of jumping out to be at the, the forefront of those particular areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is that even though the nomenclature is comprehensive federal privacy legislation, there really is no movement at this point to include things like biometrics or facial recognition in a federal framework. So the field is really open at this point for states and localities to step in. And in fact, we've seen that they've done that. So in the Bay Area, obviously, San Francisco and Oakland both have exercised municipal authority to uh, have moratoriums on facial recognition systems by law enforcement. We've seen a pretty broad spread of these types of moratoria in Massachusetts. We have Boston and a number of other larger cities in Massachusetts. So clearly, I think states are highly sensitive now, particularly in our general discussions about the criminal justice system, and particularly because uh, NIST, which is the National Institute for Standards, has done testing, continuous testing, and shown that there's about a 30% error rate, particularly in terms of facial recognition of racial categories. And on that basis, I think a number of localities set, have said that they do not want to have facial recognition systems that have that large an error rate. So that, that's at what's happening at the local level. At the state level, we have Illinois, which really has pioneered biometric laws. And this is a much broader concept. I, I think it's better to look at this as the area of biometrics as opposed to just take individual technologies like facial recognition and develop a regulatory scheme around that. So uh, Illinois essentially has a system that applies to private companies using biometrics, and that would include facial recognition, thumbprints, other elements where you could identify the person based on their biometric information. And so it's a prohibition on private companies, and that's different than what we've seen in the local facial recognition area, which primarily has applied to public authorities and particularly public law enforcement authorities. The Illinois one is, is an interesting example that the standards put in there really have nationwide impact. Uh, if you can't tell where your, your data is coming from or where the people that correspond to that data are located, you've got a real problem with the Illinois statute if people just happen to live there. Absolutely. Uh, what's interesting, again, is this really has not been on the radar screen at the federal level. I wouldn't expect any real action, particularly in the 117th Congress or our current Congress, uh, in terms of biometric. I think Congress, if it moves at all, is going to move in this other direction, which is what they call comprehensive federal privacy le legislation, which really deals with personally identifiable information data, as opposed to biometric information, which is generated by particular technologies. At the end of the day, you can pass all the, the privacy regulations you want. If you don't have resources to enforce, 
nothing's going to happen. How are the resources being divided between the federal and state and municipal levels to handle any of the policing on, on privacy? Well, I think that's the ultimate question here. As you said, you can have great laws, but if you don't have enforcement or other resources, the effectiveness of those laws is going to be called into question. And also, I think people may lose confidence in having further legislative or regulatory measures because the government essentially can't enforce them. So uh, what's interesting is the, the new legislation dealing with infrastructure that was just enacted and signed by President Biden includes a provision for the Federal Trade Commission to have an expanded budget. And the numbers are pretty large. It's $500 million over an eight year period. So that comes to about 62, $63 million a year that the FTC can now devote specifically to privacy enforcement. And by point of comparison, today the FTC allocates about $13 million on an annual basis. And so we have seen that there's going to be, you know, a four or five-fold increase in the dollar resources that the FTC is going to have, uh, which is, is good. The question is, is that enough? And obviously the FTC is going to organize their resources, hopefully efficiently in a bureau. And the bureau would be comparable to the two existing FTC bureaus, one in competition and one in consumer protection. And so privacy would get its own bureau, presumably a combination of money and authority within the agency can be helpful. Uh, on the other hand, it's not necessarily going to change what the FTC can do under law. So for example, the FTC has no authority against nonprofits. It has no authority over common carriers. Uh, and so there's also an interesting issue that's going to come up between the Federal Communications Commission and the FTC, the Trade Commission, as the Biden administration tries to reimpose net neutrality uh, at the FCC under the Communications Act. And I'll try to do this in very basic terms, but it's been a moving target for a number of years. Uh, during the Obama administration, the FCC decided that information service providers essentially would have to adhere to net neutrality rules and uh, essentially were covered by Title II of the Communications Act, which treated them basically as common carriers. That lasted just a brief period in the Trump administration, and it was repealed. Now the Biden administration, particularly because we have a new chair, Jessica Rosenworcel, and we will have a three to two Democratic majority on the FCC, and President Biden's commitment to reinstall or reinstate net neutrality. What, what that means is that if it's reinstated, the FTC will lose any authority it has for privacy enforcement against those companies. And so that means that the only agency that could do that would be the FCC. And the FCC 
has virtually no resources to do that. So there's something where it could fall between the cracks. Uh, the other thing is, is practically people. So right now, uh, there are I, about 40 people at the FTC who focus on privacy, and that's of an agency of 1,000 people. So if you can imagine all of the different privacy complaints and enforcement that needs to be done by 40 people now, it's almost an impossible task. It's going to get better. Uh, they're talking now about, again, increasing the budget. And so you can imagine the Bureau is going to have, uh, you know, probably a significant increase in staff. But the question is, will they ever have enough? And at the state level, of course, the great example that everyone will be following is the, uh, the new digital protection data protection agency in California, which was created by the CCPA and the CPRA. And basically uh, it has some resources, but the resources are relatively thin. And the question will be whether there's going to be enough money to do the enforcement at the state level. We've talked about municipalities, the federal and the state levels, uh, but there's also a, a real international component to this discussion. And, and a lot of times the international discussion stops with Europe, but that's not the only international jurisdiction we've got to deal with. And I understand that uh, in the, the successor to, to NAFTA, the new uh, USMCA, there is some intersection there with digital privacy protection. There is, and you're absolutely right. I think there has not been as significant a focus on non-European international developments. So let's take the USMCA, which as you said, is the successor to NAFTA. Uh, in there is a series of provisions dealing with data transfer between those countries. And there's a sort of an omnibus provision that says that the three countries have to work out their data transfer protocols, which obviously would implicate privacy in all of that. Now, both Mexico and Canada have pretty well-developed data protection regimes, privacy laws. The United States does not. And so one question is, when the United States comes to the table to deal with Canada and Mexico, and we've seen that this week because both the Mexican and Canadian uh, presidents, uh, Prime Minister, obviously, of Canada, we're meeting with President Biden, but there are going to be a series of meetings on implementing the USMCA. And I think one of the questions is, what will the United States be bringing to the table in terms of saying, this is our position regarding data transfer? We don't have one at this point, and clearly we don't have a federal law that we could point to but in the treaty, it's a mandatory provision that says that the three countries need to work this out. And so that's going to be an interesting area to watch uh, over the next few years. Uh, the second big area and one of recent import is China because China has enacted a personal information protection law. And in doing so, they adopted many of the things that Europe had adopted in the GDPR. So we talked last time about the GDPR's pretty 
broad influence around the world on other countries. And there's an example where China now is looking to the GDPR. On the other hand, China has also really tied this into cybersecurity and their national interest. And so essentially it gives the Chinese government almost unlimited power to surveil and take and use any of this private information. And that has a larger implication in terms of our bilateral relations with China. Obviously, we're trying to deal with them on the human rights level and trying to get the Chinese to essentially limit some of their particularly pervasive authoritarian uh, actions. And this is one of them. And, and in the trade area as well, uh, the Chinese government has said under this law that it will blacklist companies from entering or doing business in China if they don't comply with the Chinese personal information protection law. So the question here on the trade front is whether the United States potentially might look to have some sort of reciprocal penalties for US companies that get blacklisted in China for violating the act. We've seen this particularly in the Trump administration dealing with tariffs which remain in place. But here's another example where privacy and trade start to intersect with each other. And as I understand the new Chinese law, there's also a, a fun little surprise in there that really goes beyond GDPR, and that's prison time. Yes, absolutely. And uh, criminal penalties uh, obviously, again, raise this issue of, of human rights and authoritarian regimes. And the question we have basically a China policy in process here, but uh, clearly I would expect that the Biden administration at some point will begin to raise some of these issues in its bilateral discussions with China. Looking at, at all of these, these jurisdictions, what should we be looking for next? The next 60 days, are we gonna see anything to really pay attention to? Well, I could tell you probably what not to pay attention to as much. Despite what you hear, I am not particularly sanguine that there's going to be any major legislative move in Congress for the type of federal comprehensive privacy legislation that's been discussed over a number of years. And again, it goes back into practical politics. I think if the Biden administration can get the Build Back Better Act, and of course, they've just enacted the Infrastructure Act. I think those are the two major legislative achievements that they probably are going to be able to have prior to the 2022 elections. And I don't think they're willing, and I haven't seen anything that indicates that they want to take on anything as potentially contentious as privacy legislation. So I, I would say in the short term, look to the states and localities, but then as I've emphasized here, this whole international area is very interesting because it implicates areas like trade, which have enormous economic consequences. Well, Stuart, once again, thank you for visiting with us. And as these new developments pop out, uh, we will definitely be coming back to you to, to find out what we need to know. I look forward to it. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Mike.